Good evening, Albany. My name is Sean Ness, and last week I had a talk with political science professor Matthew Ingram. We discussed a new Supreme Court case filed by two men from Rensselaer County. Now, here's what Ingram has to say about New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. Uh, so in terms of who I am, I, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Political Science. I've um, been here at UAlbany for um, eight years. I think this might be the start of my ninth year. Awesome. You've been teaching political science this whole time? Uh, teaching in the political science program, yeah, this whole time, mostly in, in public law courses. So right. some, some of my background is in uh, is in law. I, I went to law school, but I, I never practiced as an attorney. Mm -hmm. And I have about seven years. Before I went to grad school or law school, I worked in law enforcement for about seven years. Right. Awesome. Could you start by giving a brief overview of this uh, New York State versus or uh, New York State NRA versus Bruin case, like through a little rundown? Yeah. So uh, about ten or twelve years ago, the Supreme Court, in in two cases that you mentioned in your in your questions, in in a, in a pair of cases said basically that the, there is a constitutional right for individuals to, to keep um, uh, firearms in their home, right? That there, is, that there exists this individual right to do so. Um, and there have been some gun rights advocates sort of looking to expand that beyond the home, right? The, the, there's a lot of controversy around the country, right? About uh, to what extent people are able to carry guns, you know, concealed or out in the open anywhere they want, right? In businesses, on the street, uh, et cetera. So New York State has um, a permitting process for firearms. Uh, this law has been in place maybe for a century, for like a hundred years. And it basically says that you, if, if you want to carry a firearm, right, carry a, 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 a firearm outside the house, you need to apply for a permit. And then that permit is reviewed by uh, an official. It turns out that these officials are, are, are judges. So it's, 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 a, it's a county level process. So you, you apply within your county of residence and then a judge uh, reviews your case and decides whether to grant this permit. Right. And two men from Rensselaer County. Um, and then I think a third as well, who's affiliated with a, with a, um, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association uh, applied for permits. And it's not that they were denied um, permits, but they, they were granted partial permits. So two of the men are at the core of the case. And one of them was granted a permit only to carry a firearm to target practice or to hunting. Uh, outings and the other one was granted those permissions as well as a permit to carry a firearm to and from his uh, workplace. Mm -hmm. And what they're challenging is that they they want 
completely unrestricted permits to carry concealed firearms wherever they want. Right. To, to the mall, to go grocery shopping, right? to go to the movies or whatever. And so they challenged the New York state law as, uh, uh, as undermining their Second Amendment rights, relying in part on these two cases from about 10 or 12 years ago and basically trying to expand those rights outside the home. That's a, that's a, a rough analogy. Right. But, but inter interestingly, uh, law a law enforcement organization filed a brief against allowing the permits to be expanded because law yeah. enforcement is, is not interested in seeing sort of a flood of guns in the streets, right? There's the, the position from law enforcement is that when you respond to a, a shooting incident, if you have lots of people who are armed in the street, then they're likely to respond to the shooter by shooting. And then the police respond and they're trying to sort out, you know, who's like, who started the shooting, who's shooting in response to the shooter, who's yeah. shooting back. Mm -hmm. it, makes the, it makes law enforcement's job really difficult right? and, and more dangerous. Right. Some people think that the increase in police shootings is in part due to anxiety by police about the extent to which weapons are more widespread in the community. And could you go over a bit about the uh, two men's side of the case? What, what exactly it is they're arguing, what they're reasoning? Right, so their argument, I, I, I happened to listen to the oral argument, um, it was last Wednesday, Yeah. before you, before you wrote me. Um, and the, the core of their argument seems to be that the Second Amendment guarantees a right to self-defense that doesn't stop at the boundaries of your home. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 it expands in, right wherever you are. Um, and so if, if Heller, um, District, District of Columbia versus Heller is the Supreme Court case from, around, from 2008, I believe. Yep. Um, that said that this individual right to own um, handguns uh, was protected by the Second Amendment and relied in large part on, on arguments about self-defense. And so these two men from across the Hudson River, right, are saying um, that right doesn't end at your doorstep, right? It, 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 it exists everywhere. And so when they applied for a permit and were denied this permit to carry um, uh, firearm wherever they wanted, they're arguing that's an, an infringement of their constitutional rights. Um, uh, as, a, as a secondary argument, they're also saying that um, their constitutional rights should not depend on the discretion of an, uh, a county officer. Mm -hmm. your, your, their constitutional rights conceivably could be more expansive or more restricted depending on which county they lived in and the judgment of the, of the, of the, of the county official that re reviewed their complaint or their permit, excuse me, their application. And so they're saying your constitutional rights should be automatic, right? We shouldn't go, have to go to an official in order to have, in order to activate our constitutional rights. Right. Yeah. I, I believe it's, um, I, I believe it was Clarence Thomas who was like, why, why should these men have to justify their second amendment? Right. right. Why should you have to go somewhere to, to get permission to exercise your constitutional right? Right. That's a, that's a 
better way of saying it. Thank you. Right. So, um, and I think there's, you know, some, some audiences also might say that, might also say, why should you have to pay to exercise your constitutional rights, right? Because the permitting process also costs money. Uh, we were having a discussion in class about this the other day, and some people were, were kind of, uh, expressing a similar concern, right? That why, why should you have to pay several hundred dollars in order to get permission to exercise your constitutional right? Especially if that money is not going to be refunded if it's denied, right? Right. Um, the it sounds like you listen to the counter argument, right? Where the the, the oral argument and the, the counter argument there is that um, there's lots of constitutional rights that aren't automatic in that way, right? And there's a uh, one some of the examples that were made in the briefs and an oral argument were about First Amendment rights, right? sort of speech or association rights. You know, a, a demonstration or a parade. Uh, lots of events, right? You need to you need to request the permission of the city for. And the, the argument from a governance perspective is that in order to maintain public order, you just have, can't have parades and demonstrations and events popping up at random all over the place. Right. right. So you need to have somebody kind of keeping those things on a schedule or organized. And so there's a permitting process, and you have to pay for those permits. You know, if you want to have a block party, you know, I've, I've hosted block parties on, on in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. If you want to gather with our friends on our street, right? You need to get permission from the city. And so there's there's potentially First Amendment uh, expression-related or association-related rights at stake there. But those aren't automatic either, right? And we don't really contest that. It seems reasonable that uh, you, should, you should need to check with city authorities before you start taking over streets or doing something like that. So going, going back to the um, Bruins argument, could you describe a bit of, of what their main talking points are? Um, so from, from the state, they, with regards to the main argument about self-defense and the Second Amendment right, um, the argument there is that the, the state has an interest in screening who gets to carry a, a, a firearm out in the community right? for the sake of public safety, um, public order, etc. Uh, and even in Heller, in those earlier Supreme Court decisions, right, Scalia, who authored those opinion, who authored the Heller opinion, is widely regarded as being uh, in the conservative, on the far conservative end of the Supreme Court, and certainly even an, an outspoken advocate of gun rights, right, a hunter. Um, even he, in his opinion, was carving out exceptions to the Heller right, right? Mm-hmm. Might, there might be mental health exceptions. Uh, there might be other reasons, right, why you might want, not want to grant somebody. Uh, you might, might not want to allow some people to own uh, weapons, right, even in their home. Uh, mental health issues, maybe they live right next door to a school or other sensitive areas, uh, et cetera. And um, so the state was saying, we have an interest following the same logic that Scalia was expressing. We have an interest in kind of screening who these individuals are. It's not that people are categorically denied a right to carry a firearm. As we were saying before, these two men from Rensselaer County they were not denied permission, right? They were granted a permission to carry firearms. So it's, it's not a categorical black and white issue. Sometimes it's painted that way to, 
kind of make it a little bit more controversial or make it seem like it's more charged. So the, the argument from New York State is, A, it's not a categorical issue. Right? We're not just categorically denying the people the right to carry arms outside their homes. Indeed, for these two men, they were granted permit permissions. They were granted these permits. One of them, they're both granted permits to carry firearms to and from target practice and hunting. And one of them was, was could even make a case to carry a, a firearm to and from work. And the reason he was able to do so is that New York State says you, you don't get to have a um, unqualified, an unrestricted permit to carry a concealed firearm unless you can show good cause. And that good cause can't be abstract. It has to be um, specifically tailored to you. Some of the language that they use, use is that it can't be speculative, right? It, it can't just be a possible harm that might come to you, but it, there has to be, you have to be able to make uh, an individualized uh, argument based on evidence and specific facts, right, about why you need a, to carry a firearm all the time for self-defense. So you can imagine what this might look like, right? It could be like a stalking victim or somebody who's been, who's received repeated death threats. They would, at least in theory, have a much better case to make for getting an unqualified, unrestricted permit to carry a concealed firearm uh, than somebody who just wants to or says, I'm, I'm worried about dangers in the world, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's a more abstract case. And that, that's speculative portion. That's a big argument where, say, people living in Manhattan, for example, if they live in a bad neighborhood, right. that's, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's um, a big talking point, right? Right. There's this idea that you might say, well, I live in a bad neighborhood. Um, you know, I, I need I want a gun for self for for self-defense. Well, you know, if you if you live in a bad neighborhood, then um, presumably having a gun in your home, which you're already allowed to do, that provides you a substantial measure of protection right, against somebody coming into your home. So what is it about your transit to and from your home that makes it dangerous specifically to you, right? And there, somebody who has to go out to work at night, right, maybe at midnight, like because of their schedule, maybe they, they leave their, they, they, they go to and from their house during, at, at dark, you know, at, at nighttime, would have a better argument in theory than somebody who works from home, say in the extreme, right? Yeah. Um, or who is picked up by car service in front of their apartment building, right? Whenever they leave the house, right? That person does not face as much danger as somebody who might have to walk through a lot of dark spaces in the middle of the night in order to get to work, right? In a dangerous neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So you still, it's not, it's not enough to say that I just live in a dangerous place. I mean, somebody could also, if, if that was sufficient, then somebody could say, oh, well, I, I live in the New York metropolitan area, right? And generally, that's da more dangerous than, say, um, I don't know, living in Saratoga Springs, right? Right. But it's not enough of an argument. It's too general, right? You still need to make more of a case for why it's dangerous to you specifically. And, and, and again, New York State said one of these men was able to do that, right? He said that he, because of his work schedule, he has to walk to a distant parking lot uh, in the dark 
And because of the circumstances and the context and, and, and where this parking lot is, is there, he could make, he made a case to the judge that there was a sufficient risk of, of harm to him, right? And he wanted to carry his firearm with him for self-defense. And the judge agreed with him and, and, and extended the permit to, to carry the firearm to and from work. Um, so then the, the, uh, the, the other argument by New York State is that it's not that they don't uh, issue these unqualified permits in a, in a two-year time span, I think they said, uh, from 2018 to 2019, they issued almost 40,000 permits, I think 37, 38,000 permits. And that's just in a two-year time span, right? Does, that doesn't count the, say, another 40,000 permits that they issued in the previous two years and however many they issued in the two years before that. So if this law has been in effect for 100 years, you know, who knows how many unqualified permits are out there, right? There, there's probably hundreds of thousands of unqualified permits out there total. Right. Um, so it's, it's definitely not the case that it's a categorical issue, right? They've definitely issued these to some people. You just have to be able to convince a judge that you have good cause to need one. Um, so that's the argument on New York State, right? That this, this is a, a reasonable approach to regulating firearms in the community. Now, we, we've mentioned this District of Columbia, the Heller case. How, more specifically, how does it play into this case? What are, what are the uh, justices, how are, how are the justices using it for their arguments? Yeah, I, th I think some of it is this, you know, this idea of to what extent should this logic of self-defense extend outside the home? Um, then some of it is also to what extent should some of the exceptions that Scalia mentioned in Heller, right? To what extent should they apply here as well, right? Clearly, Scalia was sensitive to the idea that you probably don't want guns circulating too close to some places, right? Whether it's schools or really densely crowded areas, um, stadiums, you know, large events, festivals, et cetera. And so there is some, some discussion, right, about to what extent these, um, does New York state law seek to accommodate this? Right. And there's, there's uh, so I think that's the most direct way that Heller and McDonald apply here, right? So to what extent does this logic of self-defense extend here and to what extent are the exceptions that were, that were identified there, to what, to what extent are they analogous here? Uh, an interesting thing to note is that um, the parties, again, it sounds like you listened to the oral arguments. So you might have noticed that they, they they spent a lot of time talking about history, right? And what mm -hmm. what does what do the historians tell us, right? Were were the practices that justify thinking, you know, resolving this one way or the other? And it's pretty clear, I think, that they're the historians are not going to resolve this. Right there, I think Justice Breyer expressed the most frustration because he was saying there's just as much history on this side as there is on this side, right? You have sort of like an army of historians on this side saying um, carrying concealed weapons outside the home is, was common practice, right, at the time of the drafting of the Second Amendment. And you have an army of historians saying over here, well, no, there's just as many regulations or concerns about that. So there's, there's sort of an equal amount of historical evidence on the other side. Um, 
Um, and then there's there's folks that aren't really paying a whole lot of attention to the to the text of the Second Amendment. Right? So there's a, there's a lot of interesting questions about legal interpretation here. Right? There's the the conservative justices are usually regarded as placing a lot of emphasis on what what do the actual words of the Constitution say. And here, nobody's really paying a whole lot of attention to those words, right? That all this, these ideas about a well-regulated militia, and that sort of thing, right? There's there's not a, not a lot of discussion of those words. They seem to have sort of jumped to what do the what does the history justify? Right. But there's there's also another interesting historical debate because um, after the Second Amendment, sort of the founding moment of the country, of course, much later in the in the 1800s, we go through a a very bloody war, right? The Civil War that was largely over, mostly if not primarily over slavery. Um, and then in the aftermath of the Civil War, we have these Reconstruction Amendments, basically what, what a lot of people refer to as a second founding of the country, right? A sort of a second constitutional moment, mm -hmm. redefining a lot of rights, not just abolishing slavery, but then trying to think more deeply about what does it mean to abolish slavery? We're not just saying that it's no longer constitutional for one person to own another, but now that there's 4 million people who've never known any freedoms, right? And it was even a crime for them to own a book, much less a gun, right? Um, what do we do as a country to provide full meaningful citizenship for this population of 4 million freed slaves? Right. And that's what the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment were about, right? Really providing due process, equal protection, full citizenship. And in between those amendments, there's several civil rights acts, right? The Civil Rights Act of 1866, the Civil Rights Enforcement Act of 1870, the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. There's a whole bunch of congressional legislation that's passed to basically give full effect to the new citizenship for freed slaves. In that discussion around equal protection for the 14th Amendment, there's a debate uh, about whether to grant freed slaves the right to own guns. And there's a strong argument made there uh, for yes, right? Because the uh, freed slaves are living uh, in, an, in, in, in the Southern states where their, their own communities are hostile to, their, to them, right? To their existence, right? Into their freedom. So in, in a sense, in, in the Second Amendment is a is the like the, the the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, right? That side of the argument, the plaintiffs, it's it's a it's appealing, right? Rhetorically, persuasively, it's it's appealing for them to try to cloak themselves in the in in the Second Amendment because that has all of this flavor of. Um, I must have an individual right to own a gun in order to protect myself against a tyrannical government, right? Against the next King George, right? Under the 14th Amendment, it's a, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced, right? There, the discussion there was about the right of freed slaves to own guns to protect themselves against uh, a, a majority portion of their own communities that was hostile to their own existence, right? With lynchings. I mean, there were thousands of lynchings, right, in the South during this period. 
And so there it's about equal protection, right? The, the right of individuals to protect themselves against a, uh, a tyrannical population. Right? Well, they're, they're very different kinds of arguments. So from a historical perspective, it's also interesting that there's this, there's this willingness to look very far back at history, right? To the distant history, but then not look at the more recent history as some call it, right? The second founding or this second big constitutional moment after the civil war and what equal protection means there and how gun rights were thought of there. In a sense, maybe the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association might have a stronger argument under the 14th amendment, right? And equal protection if they were to try to cloak themselves in the, in the rights of freed slaves, right? But, yeah, you know, given some of the conservative tendencies and the gun rights movement, you could see why they might find it more appealing to kind of cloak themselves in the arguments of a tyrannical government and the Second Amendment, right? Than in the rights of Reconstruction and freed slaves. Now, I, I know New York State; their gun laws are pretty unique. I think there are only there are seven other states out of fifty that don't or. Um, hmm that don't allow for this uh, concealed carry laws. Could you talk a bit about that? About how uh, yeah, New York State's laws are unique? I don't know their exact, the exact numbers. I don't, I don't think that they're unique, right? It's that New York is certainly not the only state that yeah. does it this way, right? I, I think there might be seven or eight other states. I believe, that, it, I believe it's seven. Yeah, that do it this way, right? So uh, there's this... There's this, uh, I think, a distinction made between the sh the shall issue states, right? States where if you if you apply for a permit for a gun like this, the the state shall issue to you it to you, right? There's there, there there are fewer barriers to getting a permit like this, and I think the New York um, regime, right, the regulatory regime, is is considered a may issue state. Right? So there's, there's a group of shall issue states and there's a group of may issue states and there's considerable more discretion given to judges in may issue states to determine this, right? Based on the nature of the community. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's accurate to say that New York state is unique, but it's maybe in the minority. Right. right. So now that, now that we've kind of gone over the, the facts of the case, if the, if the court rules in favor of the um, Rifle and Pistol Association, what might that mean for gun owners across the country? If they rule in favor of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it would basically convert those seven states, right? Seven or eight states, including New York, it would convert them into shall issue states, essentially, right? Yeah. So it would, it would make it um, easier for people to acquire <clears throat> permits to carry concealed weapons in the community, right, outside the home. Now, the, the Supreme Court is a 6-3 supermajority on the conservative end. Who do you think, do you think the dissenting judges will be pretty split along party lines? Or do you think there will be any uh, flip-flop? Um, I don't know. I mean, the... the the oral argument, you know, if, if you were to just go by 
you know, at first glance, just looking at the ideological profile of, of, each, of each justice and thinking, as you said, that it's a 6-3 court uh, with a uh, conservative supermajority, you might expect sort of ex ante that this would go 6-3 in favor of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. Right. Um, given some of the, the nature of some of the questioning and, you know, the historical evidence, the way people were thinking about this, I, I think it's fair to say that the three uh, liberal justices, right, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, are probably going to vote with New York State. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't really hear anything that suggested that they were wavering, although Breyer seemed like he was unhappy with the historical evidence, right? He just wasn't convinced either way. Um, but there were some other justices where I was kind of surprised that at, at some of their questions, right? Or the, the nature of their questions. Um, I, would, I would expect that, I haven't thought really deeply about this, about trying to predict which way they'll go. <laughs> I, I usually teach a class in the spring uh, called Predicting Supreme Court Decisions. I think Hagen might've been in that class last year, but I, I haven't applied my, my thinking about from that class to this, to this case in great detail. Um, but I, I think given the, the, the tone of oral argument, I think it'd be reasonable to expect that Justice Thomas and Alito would vote in favor of the, of the Rifle and Pistol Association. But then I, I, I had my, my doubts listening to the questions from Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, um, Justice Barrett, and then who am I forgetting? Oh, it's just the name on the tip of my tongue. Oh, good grief. Thomas Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Barrett. Why am I forgetting? <laughs> oh, wait, I'm doing a Roberts. Roberts, sorry. Yeah, and Roberts. Um, uh, I wasn't so sure about them. Um, Gorsuch has done some unexpected things because he's a, he's well known for being a very like um, consistent textualist. At the same time, he might think that you know, following pre if if we're going to extend this um, from Heller, you know, if, if Heller established that right in the home, then are we going to extend this? You could you could see how he'd be convinced one way or the other or another. Um, but he's done some surprising things based on the text of, of language. So I, I could see him maybe um, focusing on the, on, the, on, the, on the specific text of the Second Amendment and, and maybe wavering a little bit on whether to extend this into the community. And then Roberts, a lot of folks think that he is, is much more concerned with the public perception of, of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court these days than with ideological divides. So he might, you've seen him side with the three liberal justices recently. It doesn't really, it, it could be strategic on his part because it doesn't really change the outcome of the case, right? It just makes it a 5-4 case instead of a 6-3 case. So he might do that. He might still agree with the outcome voted on by five justices, but if he sides with the majority, with the minority, excuse me, it doesn't affect the outcome. He might still get the outcome that he sincerely agrees with, but 
he also gets the benefit of making the court look like it's more legitimate. Right. So I think he's the likeliest one to split and join Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. But I found myself wondering about about uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Justice Justice Barrett. Right. I actually never never thought about that. The how the people perceive the court. That's something I hadn't yeah. thought about. That's really interesting. There's some recent polling. One of the last polls I saw. Uh, it was in September, I think. It's the lowest public approval of the Supreme Court in, uh, I think, in the history of polling. Wow. Yeah. So it was after that poll came out. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Breyer, and Justice Barrett all made public appearances to talk about how the Supreme Court is not a partisan court, like the party and ideology don't matter. Right. It was right after the poll came out. Um, and Justice Barrett made a very poor choice, right, because she went to, to give her speech about how the justices on the Supreme Court do not have any kind of party affiliation. She went to the Mitch McConnell Center in Kentucky, right? sort of standing next to Mitch McConnell to argue about how the Supreme Court is not partisan. Right. It was a very, very poor, it was a, it was a poor choice, a poor look for her. Um, and then Justice Barrett used to be a law professor at Notre Dame Law School, and both Justice Thomas and Justice Alito chose to go to Notre Dame to give their speeches about how the Supreme Court is not ideological right, or not partisan right um and i i don't i don't you know briar it's unclear what he was thinking he's he, he recently published a book about how the supreme court is not partisan and then that that book was released also in september some people think maybe he was just you know trying to do some pr for his book but it he's also taking this odd it, it's, it's a very odd stance to be taking right publishing a book um, and talking about how the, 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 the court, it does not have partisan stripes when everybody is preoccupied about the 6-3 majority and, and, the, and the court has the lowest public approval in decades. You know? mm -hmm. So a lot of folks think that that, that is going to play a, a major role, especially on Roberts as the chief justice and somebody who's very invested in the reputation of the federal judiciary, especially of the Supreme Court. That he's going to frequently side with the liberal justices this term because it doesn't cost him anything right if he if if he sincerely agrees with the conservative majority he gets his preferred outcome but he still gets the benefit of looking like he's bipartisan you know right awesome i that's all the questions i have thank you so much for doing this with me yeah you're welcome